Welcome to the Cup and Saucy Book Club. I'm Jen. And I'm Zana. What's in your cup today, Zana? I'm drinking a special first flush tea from the only commercial tea garden in North America, the Charleston Tea Garden, located just southwest of Charleston on Wadmala Island, which I toured just a few weeks ago. The tea doesn't get fresher than this. It's made from the first harvest of 2023. The Charleston Tea Garden has hundreds of thousands of tea bushes. It's open to the public for tours, both the factory, which is free, and by trolley, which is not of the fields and greenhouse. When we went, it had just rained, and so the trolley was like having to power through some mud puddles. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But they harvest the leaves to grow above table height, and then they harvest everything that is grown above that level. So they, they keep all the old leaves below table height. And then they only harvest the leaves that are above table height. And these trees could grow for centuries. Uh, And it's just amazing. You're going to have to take me there, you know. I will because it was so much fun. And it was a fun day out. And it's also on the way there from Charleston. You can also stop at Angel Oak, which is a very famous 900-year-old oak tree. Oh, wow. That's on John's Island. Yeah. But just Charleston in general is a wonderful place to visit. Um, it's just down the road from me, about an hour or so. Yeah, and I haven't. I've been to Charleston before, but uh, there, this uh, the tea garden was not yet there. Uh, this right. was a few right. decades ago. So <laughs> yeah, so this one start. This tea garden started in 1987. Um, yeah. it was started from cuttings that were from the Charleston area. So the original owner of the the plantation that the cuttings came from kind of that was falling into disrepair. And so they came in, took some cuttings. And now the the Charleston Tea Garden is a subsidiary of Bigelow Tea. They don't use this in their Bigelow Teas. Uh, this is their Charleston Tea Garden company, it, its own entity, uh, yes. because they don't grow enough to handle the volume that Bigelow has. Oh, yeah, no. That's a multi-million dollar corporation. Right. So. But the Bigelows, the husband and wife team, that started Bigelow Tea, they took a special vested interest in this and were just interested because of the tea and because of the location. And so they invested in this this farm to start with. But it was a really interesting place. Yeah. Just a brief bit of history. For those who think, can you actually grow tea in the United States? Tea itself is the Camilla sinensis plant, which is, that's the actual botany of it. Technically speaking, if you can grow camillas anywhere, then you can grow tea. Right. It does have to be carefully cultivated. It does. And it requires a whole lot of moisture. Yes. And a certain temperature and very good drainage, which is why it actually works pretty well in Charleston because it's very, very high humidity, lots of rain, and it's sandy soil. And so the sandy soil is what helps keep the, you know, the drainage good. For that, because you it, it needs all this water, but it can't sit in the water. Right, right. It's not it's not like a lotus that mm-hmm. can that can have its roots underwater all the time, but it can theoretically, you know, grow in the United States if you if you cultivate it properly. And this is the one location where they can. That's also why, you know, tea is only grown in certain areas of the world. But yeah, I would be I'd be very 
very excited to see this. Yeah, it was great fun. Next time I next time I'm in South Carolina, I'm definitely Yes. You're definitely come visit me. me there. Come visit me <laughs> and then we will spend some time in that area and and Wadmala is a very interesting kind of agricultural island that's not too far from Charleston. Yeah, just it's a great place. Well, speaking of things that can only be grown in certain areas. Oh, yes. What have you got in your cup today? (laughs) So it's early morning for me when we're recording this. So I have coffee (laughs) because I need it. And this is an Obama blend from a local coffee roasting company called Machetes that's here in my hometown. And it's a blend. It's called the Obama blend because it's a blend of Kenyan and Kona coffee. So it's Hawaiian and Kenyan, just like it's Hawaiian and Kenyan. Like our former president. Yeah, they did a special edition roast for his inauguration. And so that's still a very popular. It it also happens to be a very good cup of coffee. So (laughs) it's still it's still popular to this day. Okay. They also made one for Kamala Harris. Okay. From beans in India and Sri Lanka. So (laughs) so they uh, they kept that theme sort of going. Zana, please remind our listeners what I assigned you to read this month. You assigned me The Summer We Fell by Elizabeth O'Rourke. And who was it narrated by? It was narrated by Samantha Brentmore, friend of the show, and Teddy Hamilton. And what did you think? You know, I really liked it. I Things where this, the story itself is very good. The narration was phenomenal. They just did a, a wonderful job. You mentioned to me when we first started talking about it, that Samantha kind of carried most of the book uh, because it was primarily from the female protagonist's point of view. Uh, And that's true. It was done in duet style, which means that they, it wasn't like dual style where they do back and forth chapter to chapter. It was, she read all the female parts. He read all the male parts, even in the intermixed within the chapter. They're both phenomenal performers. They are, they really, yes brought a lot of life to this book. I mean, I think the book is also good. I liked how the author structured this as scenes from the past and scenes from now. And so each chapter sort of began with then, now, then, now. And it helped to build tension in this book. So the protagonist, the, the primary female protagonist, Juliet, is a, in the now, is a pop star who has yeah. all of the sort of the trappings of fame with, you know, a, abusive boyfriend and she's had some problems with substance abuse and she's and she's had a lot of issues with the press, the paparazzi and so on. You never actually see her, it's but it's implied. It's implied the substance abuse, right. yeah. Right. You don't you don't see those things, but she, you know, she talks about having you know, gone down those paths in the past or in the recent past. She has been invited back to the town where she spent a lot of her formative years because in the then we see that she had been a, like a foster kid who had left her home for reasons that aren't immediately clear and been taken in by a pastor and his wife and her boyfriend, who is the son of the pastor and the wife. She and this boy, Danny, are in love, and, you know, they're 
it's all sort of planned out for her that she's going to marry Danny at some point and then become part of this. She's already part of this family. Right. Donna, who is the the mother figure, um, who's Danny's mother and has acts as sort of a surrogate mother to Juliet. She's the one, she shows up in both the past and the present and, and she in the present is dying. Yeah. And so she wants her de facto daughter to come back and help open this children's home. Fairly early on, we get the, impl- the implication that Danny is not with us in the now. And yeah. uh, because That's... the house is Danny's house. It's not clear at all at first what happens to Danny. And that Danny's story gets told primarily through the actions of now and the actions of the past. And, you know, you gradually see what, you know, what his fate is. Um, Spoiler alert, he doesn't live to see the now. But (laughs) which is not really a spoiler alert because that's that's obvious fairly early on. That's, I know, it's not a spoiler. But, uh, (laughs) like I think chapter three. (laughs) uh, Yeah, it is super early on. So another person that is invited back to open Danny's house is a man named Luke. And he also was in the then and in the now. And he is a professional surfer, I guess. Right. This is a story that we talked about when Samantha was on the program. Yeah. Because when Samantha and Teddy worked together in Las Vegas doing a reading of These Walls Can Talk by Aaron Mallon, there was definitely a chemistry between Samantha and Teddy, and they both have that kind of surfer vibe about them, I guess. Yeah, yeah, it's and very laid so, back. <laughs> and so they were like, we need to do a surfer romance. And that's, and this is it. This is yep. the, the and, surfer romance. And Samantha sort of manifested that into being, so. Right, um, right. And it's, and she talked about it when she was with us, how yeah. you know, it, it had come to pass. They're both very well suited for this. Yes. Even though Juliet isn't really a surfer, at least certainly not at the beginning. Uh, but Luke is a surfer and Luke. So at, at first, these two can't stand each other, or at least that seems to be the case. Yeah. Eventually, basically, this ends up being a love story between Luke and Juliet. Yes. It's a hard road. It's a very hard road. There's a lot of a lot of hurting each other and a lot of pain along the way. This book has all the angst, all the angst. It does. There's a lot of angst. I would say that it, a lot of the angst, I don't fault the writer for this. I certainly don't fault the narr- narrators. It's just one of those things where I get really angry at the characters because I'm like, why are you taking this on yourself? I mean, you're, you're, you're making assumptions about people's motivations. And I, like I said, I don't fault the writer for it because this is very realistic. I do understand yes. how realistic it is. I do understand that people will, will grab and hold on to guilt that doesn't belong to them because they have issues with their own self-esteem. Yes. And that's kind of what we have going on with this story. So Juliet is so sort of self, self-hating that she really kind of makes things worse. Yeah. That kind of story irks me. (laughs) (laughs) 
I get it. I get that there's, but it's like you're you're manufacturing angst where there doesn't need to be angst because you refuse to to take a look inside and 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 be kind of self reflective and to be honest with yourself and. Yeah. Like I said, I know it's super common. It's definitely not. I mean, really, we don't you know people like that? Because I certainly sure. do. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I know far too many people like that. And I am not going to name names because I just, yeah, for one thing, I don't have, I don't have time in yeah. an hour or in, <laughs> in a half hour episode to, to come up with all the people that I know do this. Yeah. I, I just I get so frustrated with the people that do that yes. and, and and to be honest I've done it too. I mean, I've I've done enough of the self-hatred thing where I will take blame on things. My dear friend Heather back in in college taught me a line that I have internalized and have tried to live up to when it comes to the the constant I'm sorry. You know, when you and I know that you know what I mean is that that people who apologize for even existing, you know, the I'm sorry, particularly women, particularly women, the I'm sorry, I didn't mean to be a person. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to have opinions. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to to put my foot under your foot so that you had to step on me. And that line is, fuck you. I meant to do it. Love it. Love it. So I internalized this fuck you, I meant to do it many years ago now. We won't we won't mention exactly how many years ago, but many, many years ago now. Whenever I internally hear myself saying I'm sorry, part of my brain, this little devil on my shoulder, or maybe it's a little angel. <laughs> I don't know. Could be both. It says, No, no, no. You mean to say, fuck you, I meant to do it. And you know when the angel and the devil on your shoulders agree, then you have to. Right. It's the right thing to do. (laughs) It is. It is the right thing to do. And so uh, Juliet is not atypical, especially of women. I just, it frustrates me. I certainly understand that because it frustrated me too as I was listening because I know people like this as well and it just, you want to shake them, Mm -hmm. but it is also extremely human and Elizabeth O'Rourke writes it really well. She does. Because, you know, we've, we've talked about when we've reviewed other books before that if you recognize characters as existing in real life and people you know, then it is definitely, it's that that compels you to keep reading. Right. right. And I think Elizabeth O'Rourke does a great job of creating these characters that are fully fleshed out, three-dimensional, and so much so that you know them. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think that the characters are well-drawn, richly drawn. And I think yes. that even if I don't agree with them. I can see who they are, I, even if I just kind of want to shake them. Yeah. Um, and, and, and in some ways, I think the, 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 com- the compulsion to want to shake them is a sign of a good story. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's a, it's a good tale. I, but I'm, again, like I said, I'm like, oh, me too. <laughs> 
because yeah. Luke is just as bad. I mean, oh he's, yeah, oh yeah, if not worse in some ways because he's he's so angry at the world. Yeah, and he just he's but he's so bad at communicating what he actually thinks, other yeah. than with his fists. He expects the world to do him dirty, basically. And all of these, yet at the same time, he keeps telling Juliet to grow a backbone. Right, right, exactly. So it's like, it's so hypocritical. You know, yeah. he's he's doing exactly the things that he's accusing her of doing and not seeing that that he's just as much at fault for this. But, you know, to be fair, both of them have been through the ringer. I mean, yes. both of them yeah, have had... I mean, Juliet had a very, we'll just say, unpleasant bio family and yeah. and step family experience, and then she went from that to a family who seemed, at least on the surface, to be very caring, but they took advantage of her, and yes, they did. They they completely used her own feelings of guilt about her her culpability which should have been none from yeah. from I mean she was a child when things happened to her as you know it with her birth family and this this religious family comes in and says well if you if you were better god wouldn't be punishing you this way yeah and you should be more grateful that we rescued right. you and, and and in fact, it's not just the family; it's the entire town that it's tells everybody. This. It's everybody. Everybody feels tells this way. you this, and which makes me also irrationally. Well, no, it's rational. It's total rational. It's totally it makes rational. Me, it makes me rationally furious because yes. the idea that helping a child in need would mean that that child should automatically be incredibly grateful to you discounts every trauma that that child has been through yeah and dismisses and it right out of it hand dismisses it and it basically says you should be adult enough to understand how grateful you should be and it doesn't even take into consideration that this person has been betrayed by the people that they are supposed to rely on the right. most and why would they be grateful for you to take them away from somebody they loved, even if that person was abusive. If it's the only person that they've known, then it's the only it's the only love that they know. It is it is toxic, yes. But as but, a kid, you grab onto the love that you're given. Yeah. Even if it's incomplete. We certainly understand the, you know, the being in the um, foster situation that Juliet and Luke mm -hmm. are in, that that has to be handled well. But right. This book shows the effects of when it's not. Right. And Elizabeth O'Rourke does a very good job of talking to that self-preservation. Yes. I mean, Juliet, I may not agree with how she is self-preserving or Luke, how he is self-preserving, but I understand it. I understand that it's easier to take on guilt that doesn't belong to you than it is to try to fight people who have decided that you should have that guilt. It's a constant battle that she faces in the then yeah. everybody in town tells her that she's useless or worthless. 
this is a small town in middle California. It's near, you know, near a beach, obviously, but, but it's a small town. And it's definitely, you know, like the, the church is a big deal. The, um, cause the, you know, you were taken in by the pastor, you know, you should be right. especially grateful. Right. And, and the pastor himself is, he's not a Ugh. really, uh, he's not a, he's kind of a nebulous figure because he doesn't factor into things in the now so much because yeah. he's already passed. Right. He's a past pastor. <laughs> well, the current pastor is a character too. Yes, he is a character. Yeah. Uh, yeah he, but he factors in in a different way. But right. the pastor who is father figure and father to Danny is very authoritarian. And you get the sense that he's just like... He's the father knows best type. Yeah, He expects Juliet to immediately conform to the the house rules, the, you know, his way of thinking. And without really giving any instruction on how she's supposed to do that, by the way. Right. Right. Having come from a somewhat religious background, this was the part that got me because mm. I knew these people, you know, sure. I knew that I knew the church ladies in town and I knew the, yeah. you know, the pastor and his family. And and I had experienced some of that, not certainly not directly and not in this way right. that Juliet does, but I know people like this. Sure. Yeah. And, and same. I was not brought up in a religious household, but I also sought out religion when I was in high school and I would go to a church with neighbors Yeah, just because I was wildly curious about the world and faith and everything else. So I, I got a lot of that kind of church community, the good and the bad by doing that. Yeah. I have seen religious homes that are both ways. Mm -hmm. They're either very loving or they're very authoritarian like they are in the in this book. So same. Yeah, for sure. Same. So it is not it's not a judgment against religious homes. It's no, like the neighbors that, that I went to church with were so warm and welcoming and just the the most I guess the term probably godly makes the most sense to me because they just so trusted and love. I mean, it was a love of God, not a fear of God. Yes. That drove them to do the things that they did. They didn't always have everything, but they always gave everything that they could. And yeah. so even in my secular kind of upbringing, I recognized the goodness and the, the, sort of wonder of that yes. and why I was so drawn to them. On the other hand, there are the ones who are performatively pious. Yes. Both can exist and still, you know, be considered a religious background. Mm -hmm. But, you know, you have to acknowledge that the bad exists along with the good. Right. That just because they have this, the, this moniker of this religion, yes. it doesn't automatically make them good people. Claiming to be godly is not the same thing as, as being... A as actually being godly. <laughs> or actually as being a kind and loving person. Yeah. When I read this before assigning it to you, I sent Samantha Brentmore a note. She asked me how I was liking it. And I said, I know these people. Uh -huh. I know all of these people. And I really dislike a lot of these people. She says, yeah, me too. <laughs> yeah. <So. laughs> yeah. 
This is one that sat with me for a while, long after I was finished with it. I mean, I consume books so voraciously that... Right. They bleed into each other some... Yeah. yeah, And they really have to be compelling for me to sit with it for a while. But this was one that did. Uh And I also tried to assign you books that sit with me. But yes, I think that Juliet, she has definite reasons why she does what she does and and carries the guilt that she carries. She also, as an unreliable narrator, we have to remember that she has incomplete information about what happens to Danny. That's true. That's true. And she, well, and what's interesting, though, is that she's an, an unwitting unreliable narrator because she thinks that she has more information about what happened to Danny than she, than she actually had. Um, And so, but that's all revealed pretty late in the book. So I don't want to give that away. No, we don't want to go to spoilers, real spoilers, but, but, you know, just when, when anyone is reading this to know that, I mean, and and it's kind of implied with most with most things that are a first person narrative anyway that you've got an unreliable narrator from the start. True, true. Because you only have that one perspective, right? And particularly in this book, where it's, uh, with the exception of the male dialogue, uh, the dialogue of all the male characters, uh, you don't get uh, Luke's perspective at all. Um, you know, this is I, not. Uh, Teddy Hamilton is only well, doing until I don't know the if, dialogue you, here. if you read slash listen to this at all. But did, did you go and and get the bonus content from Elizabeth O'Rourke's website? Oh, I did not. No. Yeah, so I did. There's a little vignette, I suppose, that is takes place before the epilogue, but after the action of the book from Luke's perspective. Ah, uh, that's available on Elizabeth O'Rourke's website. And, and we will I, have I don't links want to, to that in the show notes. Right. I don't want to spoil it because if I t- tell you what it's about, then it's going to spoil everything. Yeah. But it's interesting to get um, to get Luke's perspective, at least in a small, small segment. And is this only available for eyeball reading or is this or is Teddy Hamilton narrating this as well? Teddy Hamilton narrates it with the female parts read by Samantha Brentmore. Oh, excellent. I will have to check that out. It is available for your eyeballs as well, but it is it is recorded. Yeah, definitely check it out because it's it's a nice little it's a nice little bow on the package of the book. Well, and we will have links to all of the bonus content on the show notes on our website. You do need to sign up for the the newsletter. You know, that's fine. Yes. Which is worth doing. This is also a way to directly support authors. Yep. If you don't already do this, listeners, sign up for author websites and get mm-hmm. their newsletters. First of all, you get first look at things. If you're interested in doing becoming an ARC reader, uh, which is advanced reader copy, Uh, that means that you see the book before it's published and to give, you know, to give notes, give reviews and feedback. If you want to become part of an ARC team, the best way to do it is to get on an author's website and Mm -hmm. become a part of their newsletter group. And then you will find out about ARC reading first. And so that's a, that's a way to, to get on that path. But I, for myself, I can't, I, I can't, think about becoming an arc reader as much as as much as that sounds like a great time it's also time (laughs) time i 
I just don't have. So um, a lot of time. A lot of time. Yeah, I have friends. I do have friends who are arc reading reviewers, and it it seems like a really fun thing, but it's like I would have to pick. <laughs> yeah, for those who are more to audiobooks, there is there are arc listeners too. So they're called ALCs, advanced listener copies. You can be a part of those too. Alk. <laughs> uh, yeah, the Alk. <laughs> they're just called ALCs. So they don't try to, to make a word okay. out of it. But you can sign up for those by going to the independent production houses. So when you listen to the end credits on your audiobooks, you'll find out where those are produced. So there's a lot of small production houses that are always looking for listeners to listen in advance, can look at their websites and get on their newsletters and find out more mm -hmm. about getting advanced listener copies. Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> those are more ways that, that you can get access to books that are not, well, first you would be first to read them. And mm -hmm. then also a lot of them are free, not all. So if, you know, if the budget is a concern, then consider that as well. Because if you're going to your public library, you know, it, it's a hit or miss proposition as to whether or not you're going to actually get the books that you want to read or listen to. Continuing on with Juliet and Luke's story, one of the things that got to me most was that Luke's belief in Juliet bef long before she had any belief in herself. I mean, this mm -hmm. was established very early on right and it wasn't even i mean yes there was the whole you know you need to stand up for yourself you need to grow a backbone well that was almost antagonistic in in how yeah. he approached that but it was when he realized how talented she was yes when he heard her sing yeah he was the one to encourage her in that way and in a way that nobody had encouraged her and then on the other side of that, she believed in him in a yes. way that nobody else did. And so, but they did this sort of somewhat secretively to each other. So, I mean, he, yeah. he was a little bit more forward with it, but she supported him in ways that he had no idea about because she believed he was worthy of it, yeah. even when he did not. And, and I think that that's where they were sort of at the same purpose without necessarily realizing it. So they both saw each other's value and worth yeah. without seeing their own. It's difficult to say because of the back and forth in time uh, yeah. nature of this book. It's difficult to say that it's a slow burn, but it is really a slow burn. It is. The past isn't really catching up to the now yeah. until much later into the book but they have some you know interactions early on or in early chapters that are romantic or sexual in nature but they're not there's nothing to ground it so right. you don't you know you don't really understand the whole history of their relationship mm -hmm. yet and you don't completely understand the degree with which they support right. each other right there's a little bit tiny bit enemies to lovers about it yeah. Um, yeah, because it, initially they are antagonistic towards right. each other but definitely slow burn definitely angst the back and forth of the chapters and how they're structured there is loss and there is there's some redemption too there is it comes at the very end of it all and so using our five cup rating system what do you give 
The Summer We Fell by Elizabeth O'Rourke, Zana. When we first started discussing this, and we talked a little bit before we started recording, and I said I didn't quite know how many cups I was going to give it, I was leaning a little bit more towards three and a half to four cups because there were lots of things that made me angry about it. But as we've talked through about why I'm angry about it, I'm realizing that it was really well written. It just things made me mad that that shouldn't have. Now, performance wise, I give it five cups. The story itself, I, I because I'm still a little bit mad, I'm going to go with four and a half. Yeah, because I, yeah. I think it's much better than I was. It, my initial coming down off of the book was like, Ugh, how just. Ugh. But now <laughs> I'm realizing that maybe that's a good thing. Yeah. I think so. I am also four and a half cups on the the book and five cups on the performance. I think Samantha knocked this one out of the park. She did. It was, and Teddy did a great job as and well. And Teddy did an excellent job and we got the surfer romance we were promised. We did. We did. I'm happy with that. But yeah, I too was angry at lots of parts, but I... I don't blame Elizabeth O'Rourke for that. In fact, I celebrate her because because if you get a visceral reaction, that's that's the mark of a good book. Right. That is the mark of a good book. As we've talked through it and I've kind of I guess we've we've gone through some therapeutic analysis of this. I'm like, oh <laughs> I get we now why up I some was stuff mad. for ourselves. Yeah. We did, yeah. And I'm like, oh right, that's why I was pissed off because this was a little too close to home in some cases. Yeah. Yeah. I I, I think it's a much better book than I was willing to give it credit for when I when I was well especially right before the end when I was (laughs) yeah how dare she (laughs) we encourage listeners to read the book to listen to the book on audio uh, because the performances are really really excellent yeah but we will have Zana's next assignment in just a minute but first a few announcements so this is the second episode in our new weekly format and Also starting this month, we will be announcing the interviews that we have coming up for the rest of the month. No, Mm. no guessing. No guessing. You know what's coming when we do. So we started this month of July with playwright Chloe Whitehorn. Mm -hmm. And coming next week. Are you going to be able to stop from squeeing? uh, No, not really. Okay. Coming next week, we have our de facto patron saint of the podcast, the fabulous Erin Mellon. (laughs) Okay. I knew I couldn't get that out without a little squee. Yeah. (laughs) And for our last interview for July... We have also exciting actor and cover model, Andrew Bernard. Yeah, he's a doll. Uh, he is just an absolute doll. And this, is a, this was a fun interview and we had a great time with him. Um, because this is a five-week month, we also have a bonus episode. So the Cup and Saucy Book Club will spill the tea on tropes. Tropetastic. And we talk about all the tropes, explain all the... It's, it's a tropetastic episode. And in fact... Uh, we may we may have to break that up into several episodes because I it got a little long. It got a little long, and and as we record this, Zana is still editing that episode, and my apologies. Yep. So, <laughs> <laughs> but for your next assigned reading, see, I did get I did come back to it. For okay. your next assigned reading, Zana, we have "Love in the Wild" by Emma Castle. Okay. 
And the audiobook is narrated by Lucy Rivers, who I think is a new to you narrator. Yep. Uh, but she's she's a favorite of mine. And Shane East. Oh, yeah, I like his voice. Oh, yeah. And this is in dual narration, which means that they switch off chapters. Mm-hmm. And Love in the Wild, I will say on the outset, is a retelling of the Tarzan story. Ah. It's set in a modern time, but it's a retelling of Tarzan, Lord of the Apes by Edgar Rice Burroughs. Mm -hmm. And very well done, if I can say that ahead. You can, but I will reserve judgment. You will reserve judgment until our our next review episode. And that is is why we have a podcast, my dear. That's right. That's our raison d'etre. If you would like to read along with Xana, please visit our website, Cup and Saucy Books, for links and show notes. And also follow us on social media at Cup and Saucy Books. We are on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. We are also on Twitter at Cup N, the letter N, Saucy Books. If you like what you hear, review and subscribe to the show on your favorite pod platform. Let us know if you have a book you would like us to review on the show. We hope to meet you in person as well. We will be in both in Anaheim at Steamy LitCon in August. And not only for Steamy LitCon, but we make a special road trip to, to the, the Ripped, Ripped Bodice, Bodice in Culver City. So I'm really looking forward to showing you this, this place. Let us know if you will be there too. And thank you for joining us for the Cup and Saucy Book Club. Join us next time when we try really hard not to fangirl over Aaron Mallon. Okay, I try really and hard. And fail miserably. <laughs> Fair. And definitely go on a few tangents. Happy reading. Cheers. Cheers.